Okay, 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> uh, let's pray together, shall we? Father God, I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Well, it used to be thought that Christians were the most loving people, that they were the most charitable and generous. They served, served the needs of the community and they'd be the first to lend a hand to anyone. But I don't think that's the way that people think of Christians anymore. I suspect the world thinks that it has a monopoly on love, that it is much better at being loving than Christians, and that Christians aren't loving at all, that they are bigoted, judgmental hypocrites, that they say that they love others, but in actuality, the church is not the place you turn to when you're after love. Think of a young person who's trying to figure out their sexual identity is the church the first place they'd go for help? Think about the divorced woman. Is the church her first point of call? Think about your neighbours and your friends. If they needed help, where would they turn? It's not the church. It's those who are most like them, those who can relate. And sadly, tragically, the identity of the church is these days more associated with hate than love. Now, we may argue that it shouldn't be so, that people don't realise that we're loving, 
But unfortunately, among the good that the church has done are acts for which we must be ashamed. In his book, One Blood, a story of 200 years of Aboriginal encounter with Christianity, John Harris says that it's an undeniable historical fact that Australian churches were complicit in the system of removing Aboriginal children from their families. And the book makes for heartbreaking reading to read of the missions that associated civilising with Christianising and churches benefiting from stolen land, barring children from their language, their family, their culture. The Royal Commission into Child Sex Abuse in 2012 likewise revealed a horrible number of victims, 58.6% of whom were molested in religious institutions. And more than half of the perpetrators were clergy. There are thousands of people in Australia today who are scarred by sexual abuse in the church, in a place that is meant to be safe. There are other sickening stories of brutal gay conversion therapy where people were given electric shots and received exorcisms, prayed over for hours or even days to become heterosexual. No wonder people scoff when we talk about love. And if you have had any experiences of this sort with the church, I am deeply sorry. It disturbs me that so much, it disturbs me so much that Christians have acted in this way. And of course that's on a large scale. I strongly suspect that there's people that I have hurt and have besmirched the name of Christ in their minds too. Tragically, in one way or another, we are all hypocrites. Well, that's us. What about God? Well, for better or for worse, one of the tensions is that for people is what they see of us, they associate with God. That's what our passage says. They see God or they see us being a liar about God. Generally speaking, I think that the consensus has been much more positive when people think about God, being a God of love. I think they think it's fairly easy to think of God as a God of love. Although there's a common misunderstanding that the Old Testament God was an angry God of judgment, but the New Testament God is a bit nicer and more loving. That assumption's mistaken, and we'll get to why soon. But generally, people believe that if there is a God, God is a God of love, right? I've had uh, people say to me things like, I like to think that God loves everyone, or I like to believe in a God of love. It's not that they necessarily want to have much to do with him, but they like to think that if they ran into him at the supermarket or at the pub or at the Last Judgment, he'd be friendly and nice to them. And I think they picture something like a grandfather or Santa Claus. You know, he knows if you're naughty or you're nice, but he just kind of laughs it off and rewards you anyway. Surely Jesus would be happy to have a beer and forget about all the other stuff. This view of God as loving is pretty weak. It's a sentimentalized version. It's kind of a lame way of saying, I don't really think there is a God, but if there is... 
I'm sure he can mind his own business, or if not, he can see that I'm really a good guy. I'm not really sure that this attitude has much substance or rationality to it. Does a God of love mean a God who accepts everyone and everything without qualification? I'm not sure that even we would define love like that, no matter how inclusive we are. There are others that I've spoken to, though, who have bitterly spitted out, God, what about God? I prayed to him and he let this happen. How can you say that God loves me? They're angry and they're bitter and they don't think that God is loving at all. Perhaps they once did, but they no longer do. They can't make sense out of a life where God is love and things happen that don't seem to substantiate that. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've heard over and over again that God loves you, but you just don't believe it. Maybe there's something that happened to you or something that you've done that keeps you from believing that God loves you. Or maybe there's no obvious reason. Maybe it's just a vague feeling that when we talk about God loving us, you you hear the words, but they don't really warm your heart and you just can't feel it to be true. I hope wherever you sit tonight that you keep on listening. Our identity is so closely linked with who God is, and that's how it should be. But perhaps we need to have a closer look at God and who he is, and in doing so, we'll get a better understanding of who we are called to be. And the assumptions that we make about God, we need to check with what he reveals in Scripture so that we're actually getting to the truth of what he does and does not say about himself. So tonight we're going to look at God is love, who he is, what he does, and then we're going to move on and look at ourselves, that we are God's beloved. That's who we are and how we live out our our identity. So firstly, in our 1 John passage, we read in verse 7, love comes from God. And even more explicitly in verse 8 and 16, we read these words. God is love. God is love. It's who he is. It's not just that God is loving or that God loves, but that he is love. Love is fundamental to the nature of God. He is the originator. He is the source of love. He's where all other love springs from. His love is his eternal giving or sharing of himself. And within the Godhead, we see God's love in action. God in the Bible is personal. He's not a force or an energy. He's someone whom we can have a loving relationship with and who exists in relationship for all eternity. The claim that God is love can only be justified in a Christian understanding of God. God as distinct from creation, as one God and three persons, is necessary for God to be love because otherwise God would be contingent or dependent on creation because love needs to be shared. But the God of the Bible is eternally love. Before creation was made, he was love. And God, three in one, it's not a self-love. It's not like he kind of looks in the mirror And he looks at his reflection and says, I love you. But it's a genuine circulation of love expressed through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
as they give love and as they receive love. From eternity past to eternity present and future, God has been defined by love. So when John says God is love, he's saying that love is bound up in the very nature of God. He isn't sometimes loving, as though we need to catch him on a good day. And as I was saying earlier, how some people think that God wasn't loving in the Old Testament and then he kind of thought out in the New. God's love doesn't fluctuate like ours. It's permanent and intrinsic to who he is. And so when he acts in judgment or in holiness, it isn't divorced from his love. Love is who God is. That's how God reveals himself in the Old Testament. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And so when we read passages uh, about love, like in 1 Corinthians 13, we could just as easily say, God is patient, God is kind, God does not envy or boast, and is not proud, God is not, uh, God does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking, God is not easily angered, God keeps no record of wrongs, God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God is love, but love is not God. We can't reverse the statement. Love is one of the attributes of God, but it doesn't sum up all that he is. Saying love is God deifies love and it waters down the God whom we speak of. It's the personal God of the the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not an abstract, impersonal, pantheistic amalgamation of love and God. We're familiar with people saying these days, love is love, meaning that it doesn't matter where it comes from, doesn't matter what form it takes, love is love. Love is the universal human experience and all forms of love are equal and valid. Well, love, according to this view, is self-defining. Yet we see from the Bible that God defines what love is. Love is not an uncaused object, but love derives its definition from God. And love is expressed in many different ways, both for God and for humans. Don Carson, in his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, notes five different ways that God expresses love in the Bible. There's his Trinitarian love, where the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. There's God's providential love, that God loves all that he's made. He's the loving creator of the world. There's God's yearning, salvific love, where he longs for everyone to be saved. There's God's elective love, which is his particular, effective, redemptive love. And there's God's conditional, covenantal love to those who belong to the covenant people of God. He tells them to remain in his love. And we need to distinguish between these distinctive ways of talking about God's love. Because otherwise, we absolutize one type and our understanding of God's love becomes inappropriate. Similarly, us humans have got different types of love. 
We have friendship love, we have familial love, we have romantic love, we have love for food and hobbies and things that we enjoy. Love for a parent should look very different than the love of a pet, for instance. The love of a child should look very different to the love of a spouse. We know this instinctively. When one type of love crosses into another type of love, we recognise that that's inappropriate. Sam Alberry says, because God is love, it means that he knows far more about love than we do. In our culture, we particularly prize romantic or sexual love as the greatest form of love. And our culture is saturated with songs and movies and books promoting sexual love as the most satisfying and important love of all. And if you don't have that type of love, then you're missing out. But Christ is love par excellence. His love was incomparable, and he never experienced that sort of sexual or romantic love. Yet we couldn't say that he lacked love, could we? And unfortunately, in the church too, we often put marriage and family on a pedestal, which God doesn't. We've relegated other forms of love to something lesser. So all of us, both in the church and in the world, need to look to God to define love, to show us how to love. Loving as God has called us to love, it shouldn't mean loving people less, but perhaps differently, and I think better and more deeply, which I'll pick up on again later. But so to summarise, God is the fountain of love. He is the source and the definer of love. And it's out of that overflow of his love that we see what he does. So let's see what he does now. From 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love manifests itself through his loving action towards us. God showed or revealed his love in his work of sending his son into the world as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We saw last week how holiness is an integral part of who God is, that we cannot approach God in our state of sinfulness. But in God's love, he takes it upon himself to appease his own justice so that we can be reconciled to him. God's holiness demands that he judge sin and his love demands that he doesn't abandon us in our sin. God's holy love refuses to ignore our sin whilst refusing to leave us to its consequences. Paul says a similar thing in Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And famously, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 
This is the goal of God's love, that we might live through him and be reconciled with the Father. So Jesus is the best evidence that we have that God loves us. This is the proof that we can turn to again and again. God's love for us is not dependent on us or anything that we can offer him. He's God. He's not lonely. He doesn't need us per se. His love rests on him. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. Dear friends, we are God's beloved ones. We are loved. God's love for us is independent of us. He's the initiator. He loves us because he does. Because God is love. We see in those earlier passages that for all God's love towards us, we did not love God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And to demonstrate God's love in the Old Testament, he has one of his prophets, Hosea, act out a parable of God's love for his people. So God tells Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman and to have children with her. For he says, like an adulterous woman, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord, he says. So Hosea marries a woman called Goma and has a son with her. And she has other children which Hosea is asked to care for and to treat as his own. Goma continues to chase after other lovers and scorn Hosea's faithfulness to her. She does it publicly and unashamedly. By law, Hosea has the right to stone her to death, but God tells him to persist in loving her and to woo her back at great cost to himself. Later in Hosea chapter 11, God says, my people have determined, are determined to turn from me but how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart is charged within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. This is God's love. God has every right to reject us, but because God is love, he instead buys us back through the costly death of his son and gives us a place with him that we do not deserve. God says, I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. God does this by sending his son into the world so that we might live through him. He demonstrates his love through his son, Jesus Christ. And we see in the Gospels what love Jesus acts with towards those who in the world's eyes are who are unlovable. When a leper approaches Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, 
Jesus reaches out and touches him and says, I am willing, be clean. And when Jesus sees a woman who has been crippled for 18 years, he goes to her and he lays his hands on her and heals her. And the leader of the synagogue is indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. But Jesus says to him, you hypocrite, you untie your donkey on the Sabbath to give it water. And should not this woman, this daughter of Abraham, be set free from what bound her? Over and over again, we read that Jesus had compassion on the people. He gives dignity to those who have been shamed. He feeds them, he heals them, he teaches them, and he forgives them. And they come with nothing more but their need. And Jesus gladly restores them. This is the heart of God on display for us to see. This is who God is. Thomas Goodwin said this, Christ is love covered over in flesh. Christ is love covered over in flesh. This is God's love for you. He sees your need and he isn't repelled or disgusted by it. Instead, he moves towards you in love. He knows of your unfaithfulness of your flirting with other gods or idols, and still he seeks you out to remind you of his unfailing love for you. His love is the best love that you can imagine. It's not a naive, rose-colored glasses sort of love. God knows exactly who we are. He's under no delusions of our sin. He doesn't ignore it or excuse it. He deals with it himself at great cost through the death of his son. God's love is an active, costly, sacrificial love, a love to surpass all other loves. The love that the father has for the son, he now pours out on you. Remember as Jesus was baptized, that the heavens were opened and the father said these words, This is my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. When we join with Christ, God now looks at you and says, This is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We are not loved because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us because he loves us. His love comes first. I think that this should free us from thinking that we have to do things to keep God loving us, as though we're in danger of him removing his love from us. It should free us from thinking that we have to somehow pay him back, that his love is on loan to us. No. God's eternal posture towards us is love. We do not earn it, and we don't deserve it. But God's love is ours to enjoy through Christ. This love sometimes may feel far away, and maybe sometimes hard to understand. When God doesn't answer our prayers as we'd like, or when we're in the thick of depression and we can't feel his love. 
But God's love for us is still constant, even then, and it doesn't depend on us. Just like the moon is sometimes hidden from, sky, from sight by the dark sky, so sometimes God's love doesn't seem to shine. But it is still there nonetheless. And at those times, even when we don't feel it, we must keep reminding ourselves of what we know is true. God's love never changes. For God has said that he loves us. He has shown that he loves us through sending his son as our substitute. And we can cling on to that until the clouds pass and we see it to be so once again. As Rosie shared before, we are loved, we are known, and we are loved. What an incredible gift that is. And so it's out of that sort of love with which we are loved that we therefore love others. So let's turn to 1 John again, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And verses 19 and following as well. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they can see, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So finally, we see that God's love for us becomes the motivation and the model for our love for others. Firstly, motivation. We need to heed the warning that Jesus gave to the church in Ephesus not to forsake our first love. We can't run off the fumes of memories of God's love. We need to be constantly returning to the fountain of love and drinking deeply in his waters. If we try to love people in our own strength, we will soon find it to be impossible. Transformative love can only be found in Christ, where we see others as we see ourselves, more loved than we can ever imagine and more needy than we would like to admit. Knowing God's love gives us confidence and value without making us cocky and superior. We can therefore love people freely and not look down on them nor think too highly of them. When you know how deeply loved by God you are, you can love other people generously. Now, there's always going to be more grace-required people that stretch you, and that's a good thing. And as our church welcomes its doors to people who have grown up with little to no exposure to Christianity, there will be people who live in ways that may be hard for us to relate to or to bear with. Love for those different to us is not natural or easy. Love for those must happen, though. We must not close the doors to those whom Jesus welcomes or set obstacles 
in their way. We should not expect a person to be living Christianly before even knowing Christ. And even after that, it's a process, as we all know. So our motivation is the love that we know in Christ. And the model is that of Jesus. John 15 says, uh, Jesus says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Well, we have been loved actively, sacrificially, and generously. We were sought out when we had nothing in us that was desirable. And when we do this, when we love others in this way, we demonstrate and make visible the unseen God in our midst. Our love towards others is evidence of our faith in Jesus and evidence of the love of God. I read uh, recently that in the Rwandan genocide in 1994, there was a group of university students from both the Hutu and the Tutsi tribes, and they were warned to separate from each other. But they stood in a circle and they held hands and they said, we live together, united by Christ, and we will die together if necessary, to which many of them did die. But that was because of the experience of God's love had completely transformed the way that they looked at others, and it brought unity instead of division. And this is the type of love that our divided world so desperately needs. I see the way that this community here love. It's one of the things that attracted me to this church, and I know it's one of the things that attracts many other people too. Uh, it's been a joy recently to read our Facebook posts and to see all the, the offers of help and um, furniture for, for newcomers, to see the contributions to the food bank, to see the offerings of meals and prayers and company when people need it. This church loves well. It's a wonderful thing. I see the love of God demonstrated in this church. I mentioned earlier how the church these days is known more for hate than for love. Well, I think that part of the problem is that the world has heard, what the world has heard is the church asking people to give up things, to live without. But it hasn't seen the counterbalance of the church filling people's lives with such love that leads people to be filled and flourishing so that those sacrifices don't sting quite as much. If we ask people to give up a former identity or former community or love, what are we replacing that with? How do we love them better? I think of those in our church who are single. How are we being family to them and caring for them as they pursue Christian living at great cost to themselves? I think of our teenagers and young adults. How can we better support them as they stand against the cultural tide? I think of those who have left homes and countries, those whose families oppose their faith. How do we welcome them? How do we embrace their background and provide for them? Just like God's love, our love must be love in action. And the same goes for loving those who do not yet know Christ. It's been my experience that this sort of love is a long-term, quiet, patient love. 
not showy or shallow. There's been times when my not yet Christian friends haven't agreed with my views on some matters and I've worried that I've lost their friendship by not joining in with the majority. And there's times when I feel like a bit of an outsider because I can't join in with many of the things that they do. But I have noticed that they really appreciate that I hold my views without judging them. And it's particularly when they're hurting or when something bad goes, happens that they seek me out. And I hope that's because they can see a little bit of God's love in me, which I suspect is what they're craving. So dear friends, please know that you are incredibly loved by God. He has taken the initiative. He has paid the great cost. His love for you does not waver. It does not stop. And it endures forever. And as you experience this amazing love, don't let it stop with you. God's love is meant to be shared. So let's share that love with others. Let me pray again. And then we're going to stand and sing. Father God, I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.